Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9, great message in the song that ties in really well with our consideration this morning. So Romans chapter 9, I appreciate Dale stepping in last Sunday night to preach. I had the privilege of being part of an installation service for the newest campus minister at Wofford, Oliver Pierce. He was uh, installed and that went well and looking forward to his ministry at Wofford and a chance to have him come visit us here so you can all get to know him, be praying for him as well. Romans chapter 9 is our consideration this morning and again in light of tonight's cancellation we'll still gather at 6 so we'll spend some time together in the word tonight for our regular evening service. Let me read verses 14 through 29. This picks up mid-thought as we've been looking at the chapter, Paul begins by rehearsing Israel's history, how God has progressively narrowed Israel in terms of a remnant. When we pick up the reading today, Paul is answering questions in the light of that. What does that tell us about God and his purposes according to election? So we begin mid-thought then with verse 14 of Romans 9. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardened whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we approach you asking for you to give us that wisdom to open our eyes and our ears to teach us. And through the 
ministry of the Holy Spirit to work savingly among this crowd here and our hearts to bring us to greater obedience to you, to love you, and to take the message out beyond these walls uh, to the very ends of the earth. So we pray to that end and ask that you would be glorified, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, we ask, can we trust God? That is the question that Paul seeks to answer as he writes Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's a question provoked by widespread unbelief among God's chosen people, Israel. Is Israel's unbelief evidence that God's promises have failed? How can we figure out what God is doing when things don't go the way we expect? And in order to answer these questions, Paul retells the story of Israel. He starts with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Reminds us of God's words to Moses and Pharaoh, as we saw just now, and cites several passages from the prophets. It's like he's making his way through the Old Testament. And he is like a person who's been following a map to his destination, but somehow took a wrong turn. Or history seems to have taken a wrong turn. Well, what do you do when that happens? What does Paul do? He gets his map back out. And he tries to figure out the proper way forward. And the first thing he remembers as he looks again at Israel's history is that God has been making distinctions among his covenant people from the very beginning. God chose to transmit the covenant promises through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau. God is sovereign to choose and reject who inherits his promises and how the covenant line advances. God has been making distinctions from the very beginning, and those distinctions continue to the present day. Over the years, Israel has become a smaller and smaller remnant. And while we can look at reasons for that, such as Israel's unbelief, Paul will do that, We also have to consider God's sovereign prerogative. And so the question we will consider today then is why does God work that way? And what does it tell us about his character? Can you sovereignly, can you trust a God who sovereignly orchestrates history in this way? And what does it tell you about his purposes? Well, once again, Paul will assure us, God's promises have not failed. You can trust such a God as this to be faithful. And so let's keep looking at this chapter where we see how God shows us that faithfulness. And we'll look today at three additional ways. Looked only at the first last week. It's still there in the bulletin. Today we'll look at the last three. We'll pick up then with this second overall reason. How does God show us that he's faithful? By sovereignly showing us his character. After laying out God's right to advance salvation according to his purposes, purposes that do not take into account people's actions or their works, Paul answers a few questions that might arise from such ideas. And the first is in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? If God chooses 
who will receive his saving blessings. Someone might object that this makes God partial or unfair. And there are verses that speak to that. Romans 2.11 says that God does not show favoritism. I believe James makes the same statement. Or 2 Chronicles 19.7 reads, With the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Some may hear what Paul is saying and say, well, that bumps up against other attributes of God. Is God exercising his sovereignty? Is God showing mercy in a way that violates other aspects of his character? Is God consistent? Can you trust him? Well, Paul responds with his characteristic, not at all. And then he cites, not at all to the idea of God being unjust, that is. And then he cites Exodus 33:19 to defend God's character. We see that in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul's first point is to assert, no one has a claim on God's mercy. No one can lay claim to it and say, you're obligated to show that. And why? Because if God was obligated to show mercy, and think here of showing mercy to Israel, those who for the most part aren't believing. If God was obligated to do that, then he would be showing partiality. Then you would have people getting saved on the basis of a favored nation status. And Paul's point through all of Romans is, that's not how this works. So Paul's first point is to assert no one has this claim on God's mercy. Rather, God has the right to show mercy to whom he chooses to show mercy and to show compassion to whom he chooses to show compassion. In other words, the sovereign exercise of mercy, that is consistent with God's character. Later in Romans 11, Paul will say, there's a remnant according to grace, otherwise grace wouldn't be grace. So Paul's point is sovereign mercy is consistent with God's character, and God's character is the standard against which he should be judged. And God is always faithful to his person. He is always faithful to his character. His attributes always cohere. Now with that in mind, notice what Paul highlights about God's character in this citation. In other words, What does God sovereignly show us? God is sovereign to what end? To show us his mercy. Again, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I think the original context, the Old Testament context of these citations is significant. God, God, Paul's not just looking at his Old Testament, man, can I find a verse that says what I'm trying to say here? No, he reads the flow of the Old Testament. These words are spoken to Israel by God right after their sin with the golden calf. God threatened to destroy them, but Moses interceded, much like Paul, at the beginning of Romans 9. 
and God forgave them. And then Moses and God had this conversation about going to the promised land and is God going to go with them or not? And Moses is saying, if you don't go with us, don't send us. And God, please then show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my goodness and tell you my name. And this is what God tells Moses. This is who God is according to God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Who am I, Moses? What am I all about? What is God's character? I am a God who shows mercy. I am sovereign, and I express my sovereignty by showing mercy, especially towards those who are disobedient and rebellious. And thus verse 16 reads, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's display of mercy towards you is not based on what you desire or what you accomplish. And that works out really well in your favor. It is based on God's mercy. He is merciful because he is merciful. That's who he is. And he will always be faithful to his character. Now, there's another side of this equation. But this one also works out well for God's people and for God's purpose To show mercy, notice verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now here is an example of a person and a nation that did not receive salvation, but that reality is still under the sovereign control of God. God tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. God put Pharaoh in the position he did in order to demonstrate a particular purpose. What was that purpose? God says that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. When did God display his power to Pharaoh? When he ruined Egypt in order to save his people. God displayed his sovereign power over Pharaoh in order to show mercy to his people. And so Paul concludes, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh, he told him, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And when Moses interacted with Pharaoh, that's exactly what happened. Sometimes the passage says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes the passage says God hardened his heart. In the end, Pharaoh's heart was hard and God destroyed him in order to show mercy to his people. And just notice, by the way, those merciful purposes are not to just a small remnant. Paul's dealing with that reality now. But notice what verse 17 says, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
And that is exactly what is happening in Paul's day through the mission to the Gentiles. So maybe strangely, some of the characters in the story of swap places where we might expect to find Pharaoh, we find Israel with a hard heart. That's what Romans 11 will go on to say. There's a hardening in part happening, but it's happening until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And it's happening now, so there might be mercy to the ends of the earth. So God shows us his faithfulness by sovereignly showing us his character. And that character is one of mercy. But let's look at another reason. Paul will answer another question in verse 19, and he will give us another way we know God's faithfulness. It's this, by overcoming all of our spiritual resistance. So Paul answers this question in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Paul has looked at the history of salvation and he has seen it as the outworking of God's sovereign and wise way of showing mercy. Even when those who are hardened contribute to God's purposes. And this way of doing things may cause some to object. But then how can God justly hold people accountable? Well, once again, Paul appeals to God's character. And he argues that humans are not in a position to object to God's ways of showing mercy. Verses 20 and 21 read, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the same right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now again, Paul is citing the Old Testament. And what I want you to see is Paul is pursuing the same argument he pursued in the earlier verses. Namely, God's right to work through Israel, even a reduced Israel, for the sake of the world's salvation. That's the language he'll use in Romans 11. And let me tell you why I say that. Notice the verse Paul cites in verse 20. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? And that language comes from two verses in Isaiah and an extended passage in Jeremiah 18. And in the Jeremiah passage, God is addressing rebellious Israel who will not submit to God's purposes for them. Sound familiar? And God is saying, Israel, I can make you into what I want to make you. And if you resist that, then I will reshape you. In other words, Israel, my purposes will come to pass, whether you accept that or not. So you can't throw up this excuse, I don't like the way God is working, I'm off the hook for not getting in line with the program. No, God says, this is my sovereign will and I will work it one way or the other. And so what then are those purposes? What was God's purpose for Israel? Verses 22 to 24 tell us. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? 
What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Israel, here's my purposes for you. I was working through you to be a light to the world. But if you resist that, then I can pare you down to a remnant so that I can then, through that disobedience, show mercy to the Gentiles. And I can endure you, I can patiently abide this disobedience because I have purposed to show mercy to many. I will endure those deserving of wrath to make known the riches of his mercy. And so Paul's point there is there is nothing Nothing humans can do to thwart God's mercy. Disobedience and rebellion can't stop it. Pharaoh can't stand in the way. Those are all parts of God's plan. And even if Israel resists, excuse me, resists and disobeys, God's mercy will come to the Gentiles. And perhaps then there is a hope for Israel in the future also, as Romans 11 will cause us to ask. This is God's purpose. No one resists it. And no one gets off the hook for not liking it. This is how God shows his mercy. And by the way, it's good to remember, we have this language of the vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy and God's prior purposes to show mercy. That's good language of God's sovereignty. But don't forget, when we come into the world, we are all objects of wrath. And as Romans 1.18 tells us, God's wrath is being revealed against us. But because God is patient towards us, not wanting us to perish, but to come to repentance, he endures and in times saves us. And the mercy that saved you is still at work in the church and in the world because God overcomes all spiritual resistance. And so finally, the way you know you can trust God is because he graciously gives us his mercy. Having declared this purpose, I will show mercy to the Gentiles, then Paul does what he's done throughout the whole chapter. He calls in the Old Testament to drive his point home. Verses 25 to 26 read, As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Here Paul cites the prophet Hosea, another prophet that warned of judgment against Israel for their disobedient ways. In fact, so severe was Hosea's warning that he employed the language of divorce. God will divorce Israel, his unfaithful spouse. And disownment, God will no longer claim, <clears throat> excuse me, the children of Israel as his own. He will no longer identify Israel as his people. However, that is not God's final word to Israel. And after a period of judgment and discipline and exile, God will restore Israel to himself. He will remarry her and adopt her children. 
and call those who are not his people, his people. Now here's what's really interesting about this verse. Paul uses this to explain why the Gentiles are getting saved. God is taking those who are traditionally not his people, Gentiles, and calling them his people. Those who are not his children have become his children. And we should probably ask, what gives Paul the right to apply this verse to Gentiles? Again, this is part of Israel's objection that God would work this way. Well, there's two things. On the one hand, Paul has a habit of looking at God's dealings with Israel in light of the whole Old Testament. We saw this in Romans 4. Yes, God gave Israel the law. But before he gave Israel the law, he saved Abraham by faith. And that's a precedent that does not change. We read the law in light of that precedent. Well, in the same way, God's original purpose to Abraham is that through him, he would bless the whole world. And when Paul looks at Hosea's words in the light of God's promise to Abraham, he understands that God's definition of my people, that must eventually involve all the nations. Why? Because God has the sovereign right to call those who are not his people, his people. He speaks and things exist, like in creation and like in the birth of Isaac. And furthermore, Jesus himself indicated God is radically expanding the definition of what it means to be an Israelite. Jesus gives the Syrophoenician woman the same blessings he gives the disciples and the other Israelites. When he heals the centurion's servant, he says many are going to come from the east and the west and they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to reshape God's people. And the basis of membership won't be one's birthright, but the divine, merciful, sovereign call of God. And this, this will fulfill God's promises. And this is consistent with God's working in the history of salvation. This is what brings comfort to Paul. And so he ends with one last group of texts in verses 27 to 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. It almost sounds like Paul just rounds back into the same dead end he was dealing with earlier. Why is there only a remnant? But Paul's purpose here is to acknowledge God is actually working. Why? Because there is a remnant. Unless God had left us a remnant. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. The remnant doesn't tell you God's purposes are narrow or that they are failed. No, it tells you God's purposes are wise and they are sovereign and they are aimed at showing mercy. Again, chapter 11, verse 25, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so Paul finds great comfort 
in God's sovereignty, in God's mercy, in God's wisdom that chooses to work this way in order to show mercy to many. So don't ever be satisfied with a remnant theology that's very narrow and very small. If God works through a remnant, it's so that he might show mercy to many. And why? Because God is faithful. And where do we see the faithfulness of God? Perhaps better than anywhere else, it is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I close with this thought. The the verses that Paul cites there in verses 20 to 28, or 27 to 28, they come from a section in Isaiah, the opening chapters of Isaiah, which are really one big chunk. And in that chunk, God gives us two pictures, powerful pictures, concerning his remnant. The first is the end of Isaiah 6, where God says, Israel, you're like a tree, and I'm going to cut you down. But I'll leave a stump behind. The stump will be the remnant. Now, that's not the most flattering image, but at least there's hope. So that in Isaiah 11, we read this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So out of the stump of Israel grows a shoot. And we read, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness the sash around his waist. And during his reign, the wolf will live with the lamb. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Does any of that sound familiar? That is Isaiah's vision of Jesus. The servant who is faithful and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The tree gets cut down, but out of the stump comes a shoot. The shoot is faithful and regrows into this great tree that, as Matthew tells us, fills all the earth. So, friends, is God faithful to his promises? Yes, because Jesus is faithful to God. And in him, God is faithful to us. So he is saving many people. And you can trust his wise and sovereign purposes. You can trust them in your life individually when you see how they work in the big picture. You can trust his purposes in our church. We have the wonderful privilege of participating in God's mission throughout the earth and right here in our community. And God has been kind to us over the years and showed us many mercies. Who knows what mercies he'll show us in the future? Who knows what they will look like? Maybe they will be different. Maybe they will require us to trust him. But that is the business he is in. And so we can trust him to work his will. As a Christian, you are his witness. You are an agent of his mercy. You can put your lives in his sovereign hands. That can work out just where you live every day. That can work out nationally, whoever you want to put in your mind as the Pharaoh figure. God says, every one of them, I raise up in order to advance my sovereign mercy. So don't look at your circumstances, again, small or broad, and think, okay, this is a threat. There is no threat that gets near the throne of God that he cannot overcome to accomplish his saving purposes. And so then when we gather, we can gather with confidence. We can gather with humility. We can gather with gratitude 
because of God's mercy towards us. Maybe if God gives you the day off tomorrow, you can just take a few minutes to thank God for saving your soul and for showing mercy towards you. And we as a church can continue to pray, all right, God, show us your purposes for our lives. You've transformed us by your grace. You've shown us mercy and you're sovereign. So work in us what's pleasing to you. So let's give thanks to God for his faithfulness. Father in heaven, after this chapter, we would be wise to bow humbly before you and even somewhat quietly and say thank you for your mercy and thank you for saving our souls and making us whole. Thank you that you're faithful and that you exercise sovereign control over our lives. Thank you that you have a purpose for us. And you reveal it to us through your word, through the spirit. Lord, I pray for our congregation. Help us to see it particularly in our lives. Whether that be our life together here at church or as you send us out into the world to work each day. Show us your purpose. Lord, I pray for those who don't know this mercy. We think of children, grandchildren, parents, friends. We pray you would rescue them from wrath. And bless the work of the word here. And save people beyond these walls as was prayed the very beginning of our service and help us then to be the agents of your mercy to reflect the love of God to love others in our lives to be those ambassadors and witnesses for Christ through our words through our deeds and provide for us we pray both now and into the future and we thank you in Jesus' name amen